Well, good morning. <laughs> it is good to be back with you. And uh, on behalf of Susan and my family, I want to thank you for your prayers um, and regret that we didn't know about my surgery before we did, or else we would have invited your prayers long before. Uh, I'd had this hernia for about three years, and it hadn't caused me any problems, but uh, about ten days ago it did begin. And um, so quickly and so substantially it changed. So uh, we found ourselves in the ER Saturday night and uh, the surgeon convinced us to come back to his office on Monday and we were surprised then to uh, have the surgery scheduled the following Tuesday. So that was just a few days back. But um, those of you who have sent emails and cards and provided meals, we're just so very thankful for you and uh, grateful for uh, your wonderful church staff. It was great just to make a couple of phone calls and knew everything Sunday would be taken care of. And very thankful for Josh Ray as well. Uh, poor Josh, I called him about 6.30 Saturday night and um, said, Josh, I, I know your ordination council is tomorrow, but uh, if you're willing, uh, we may need you to preach. <laughs> uh, no pressure, but... Uh, uh, so about 9 o'clock, I called him back and said, you're on. And, um, and so, uh, from all accounts, I know he did a great job. And his ordination council went wonderfully. Um, we're back to our more familiar schedule today. And so, uh, I'm thankful to be back with you. And uh, want to uh, share with you today the message that I had intended to share with you last week. And ironically, the message was, is about vitality. <laughs> and I've had anything but vitality in the last few days. But you know what? God is always vibrant in what He does. and I mean vibrancy, not vitality, but vibrancy. And uh, God is always so good about uh, providing what we need in the right time. And I want to start by talking with you about one of the, the cities. Uh, we actually have a city uh, by uh, the same name right here in the Bay Area, Antioch. Antioch in the first century uh, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Some estimate that it had up to 800,000 residents. I mean, it's a large, large city. It sat geographically in an area where there was a lot of uh, cross-traffic, a lot of business, a lot of things were happening in Antioch. There were people from all over the world. We think about cosmopolitan cities today that are touched by a lot of different cultures. Well, Antioch was a city just like that. There were Syrians there, Phoenicians were there, Persians lived there, Jews lived there, Arabs lived there, Indians were there, Egyptians were there. People from all over the world found their way to this very significant and large city. In fact, a couple of hundred years after the writing of Acts, we have a description of Antioch from a spiritual and religious perspective. And it was described as a very interesting uh, uh, spiritual place of practice. In fact, uh, some said that even the Greek gods came to visit Antioch and to worship there. People like Zeus and Apollos and others. So it was a very interesting and very vibrant city, both ethnically and religiously, and uh, very similar in many ways to our own Bay Area. And what we find in the city of Antioch that for me is so interesting, uh, one of the things was that Antioch was kind of, to me, maybe it was both expected, but it was really unexpected in many ways for me that it would become the place that uh, the early Christian mission movement would spring out of. 
And it was not Jerusalem. It was Antioch from which the first mission uh, journeys went to take the gospel around the known world at the time. And I guess it's to be expected in some ways for this reason. Because the gospel had come to Antioch by missionaries who were living their Christian life. They didn't call themselves missionaries. They didn't think of themselves as missionaries. They were everyday men and women that happened to have been kicked out of Jerusalem because of religious persecution. And when they went around the globe, some went to Cyprus, we're told, others went to Cyrene, others up to cities in Phoenicia, and still others landed in the city of Antioch. And as they went on their journey, they carried with them the deep reality of Jesus. It wasn't a cultural reality. It was a personal experience with the living Christ whom had touched their lives to such an extent that as they went through their life, they took the message and the good news of God with them. So when they landed in Antioch, they couldn't help but to see a community of Christian people formed because it emanated out of their life. We're going to see today not just a vibrant city, but I want us to focus a little time on the idea of the Christian community there being a vibrant community. And then they were given this name that's a very vibrant name. I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And this comes right after, I mean, this is one of my favorite passages, but it comes right after one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, Acts chapter 10, and the story of Peter and Cornelius. And uh, it's, it's so great because we're beginning to see, as Acts is really the story of the, the history of the, the first churches, once Jesus had gone back to heaven and now His physical presence is no longer with the people, I love Acts because they're learning to sort out what does it mean to be a Christian man or a woman or a youth or a boy and a girl without the physical presence of Jesus. Now, how do we live in this spiritual reality knowing that Jesus is alive, that He's still actually present, and that He still guides our life individually, but our community corporately? And so that's one of the reasons I love Acts. Now we're beginning to see uh, in, in the story, in the way Luke presents Acts, that now the Christian message isn't just for Jewish people. You remember, Jesus Himself was Jewish, and so the Christian moorings is out of Jewish communities. And now they're, they're running headlong into the reality that God loves and is for non-Jewish people as well. And that Jesus had come for Jewish people and non-Jewish people. In fact, He'd come for the entire world, no matter where you're from, because of His great love for you. And then a lot of the rest of the book of Acts is the church learning to deal with how, how do Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, how does that work? And they have a lot of conversations and a lot of meetings and a lot of trying to sort out what that means for them. Let's read a few verses in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia... Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch 
and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Let's pause there for a minute. In Acts chapter 8, we, we know this, the, the reality of the events of the Jerusalem church. Stephen, one of the early leaders, had been executed because of his faith. And this religious persecution fell upon those early Christians. And it's interesting the way it's described there because the leaders stay put in Jerusalem. And guess who it is that goes out scattered to the four corners of the world carrying the gospel as those original missionaries would go. They weren't tabbed missionaries. They weren't labeled that way. But they just couldn't help themselves. They were the everyday men and women. They were the carpenters and the homemakers and the cooks and the business people. They were the ones who were scattered, not the church leaders. Church leaders were wimps. Just kidding. But it was the everyday men and women who went out with courage and with purpose and with God before them and behind them and they took the message, and that's why some of them, in uh, connection to this persecution related to Stephen, they find themselves in Antioch. And where Christian people go, churches get established. doesn't have to be done by pastors. It doesn't have to be done by missionaries. It is done by faithful followers of Christ living their lives of vibrancy with the Lord. That's what it takes, and that's what happened in Antioch. And then out of Antioch, God did some amazing things. Let's pick up the story again in verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. I want to pause again. When I, You might see me smile when I say Barnabas' name because I can't help myself. <laughs> Barnabas is one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible, and we're going to talk a little bit about his life today. But he's... He needs more than just what I've got to share today. But Barnabas was sent by the Jerusalem church to go check out what in the world is happening at Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now you'll remember probably that Saul uh, would have his name changed later to Paul. And uh, so he's a significant character here as well. Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus, he stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Living God, we pray that your word would be known in our minds and hearts today, as it really is living and active. May you speak. May we listen. And by your Spirit, may we faithfully respond. 
Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we've talked about Antioch being a vibrant city. And I want to talk for a moment about the church community there being a vibrant community of faith. When Barnabas arrives in verse 22, we're told that he sees evidence of the grace of God. And I, want, I don't know exactly what he is seeing, and we're giving some clues here, but I think for sure part of what he was likely seeing is the way Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 5 when he describes the fruit of God's Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and so on. We're given nine characters and qualities of the Spirit because we know that where the Spirit of God is present, that the fruit of the Spirit must bloom and take root and be produced. If the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is not evident, then we must question whether God's Spirit is truly there. But when Barnabas arrives on the scene, he evaluates what's happening among these non-Jewish people and he determines that God's grace was evident in that place. We're given a little hint at the end of this chapter, chapter 11, because when... It's expected that a, a, a drought, a, a particular hardship is going to come across the land. One of the things that wells up in them is a sign of God's grace being evident among them is their desire to be generous. In fact, they take up a monetary collection to send back to Judea and to the church in Jerusalem in order to help them. And that's an element, that's a characteristic of the grace of God is generosity toward the work of God. And then we find, if we were to flip over to chapter 13, when we begin to see and to hear about the very first missionary uh, expedition that Paul and Barnabas are sent on, we see Antioch as a church. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had come there and for a whole year they had been teaching them and encouraging them and guiding them in their faith. But when the Spirit of God moved, you know, a, a mark and characteristic of the evidence of God's grace is a church that is willing to let some of their most beloved people go into the work that God has for them. Sure, it would have been a relational cost and sadness for them. And, uh, and it, it was painful relationally, no doubt. But you know what? Sometimes the work and call of God and the purpose of God can be painful for us in the short term because we know that God is at work in the bigger picture. They were one of the marks that God's grace was evident among them was that they were willing to share and to send out some of their very best people for the work of God. You know, when I was a missionary for a couple of years, uh, the, my mission supervisor, he was a good old boy from Atlanta, and he had a, a little country phrase saying that some other country-type missionaries had. You want to hear it? He said, uh, you know, missionaries are a lot like fertilizer. I said, oh... So tell me more. He says, well, you know, fer you know real fertilizer. You know what real fertilizer is, right? Do you know what real fertilizer is, right? We're talking manure, okay? doesn't smell very good, but it does a lot of good. And here's what he said. Missionaries are a lot like fertilizer. If you pile it up, it begins to stink. But if you spread it out, it does a lot of good. And you know, the church at Antioch understood that. 
You see, it was everyday people who came not with the label missionary, but with the desire to live deeply and vibrantly for Jesus. And so they planted a church, and the church from the very beginning at Antioch had a missionary DNA. And so they assumed, rightly, that part of what they were to be and to do was to be engaged in missional activity because God had planted them. That's part of the DNA He puts in a church. And so they are compelled, just like we're compelled, to engage our lives in the world around us. And so they were. Uh, They were willing to set apart Paul and Barnabas and to send them out, not wanting to hoard them for themselves, not wanting to pile up all their best people, their most gifted teachers, those who are the greatest encouragers. Sure, a community wants to keep those people, but a God-honoring community is willing to let them go as God moves and to pray for them as they go so that God's kingdom not just a particular church, is developed and expands and grows. Amen? I had surgery, so I can say amen now. And if I do that, you can respond back, amen. Amen? Amen. There's a vibrant church community. It's evidence because God's grace was present. But then we also see what makes a vibrant church community is this teamwork before Paul and Barnabas are sent out, they, they come with different gifts and different abilities. You see, Barnabas comes, and he's described uh, earlier in Acts as a faithful and generous person. Barnabas comes, and his nickname is Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. And he certainly was all of that. Barnabas was relationally strong, and he was spiritually passionate. He was relationally strong because Barnabas is a bridge builder. Barnabas is the one... You remember Saul before he became Paul? You remember what he was? He was a great educated teacher in the Jewish faith. But when he originally thought that Christianity was going to subvert and undermine and potentially destroy Judaism, you know what his impulse was? You remember? He went out attacking the church. He was one of the lead persecutors of the church. In fact, when he had his own personal encounter with Christ, he was on his way to Damascus, and God's blinding light knocked him off his high horse and set his path in a new direction. That was the story of Paul. Now, if you were in that early Christian community and you knew Paul's reputation, and you had heard that he had become a Christian, would you have been a little skeptical? I would have been. I would have been a little cautious around him, and so was the church. For what better way for somebody to come and to undermine the Christian church than from to be an infiltrator and to undermine it from within? And you know who it was who came beside Paul and introduced him to the Christian leaders? My man Barnabas. You see, Barnabas is a bridge builder. Barnabas was relationally strong, and that's one of the great gifts that God gave him as a man, and God allowed him to work that out. I think Barnabas, when Paul and John Mark had their great falling out, and we see, we seem to see that they have been, uh, we don't know how or when, uh, but they have been reunited and reconnected. I think Barnabas probably had a big hand in their reuniting. He was relationally strong, but he was also spiritually passionate. Do you remember what he told the believers when he arrived there? He, he shows up, sent by the church in Jerusalem to check out what's going on at Antioch. And you remember, you've, you've seen it, we've read it today. He was glad, and this is what, he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. 
You see, he was spiritually passionate because Barnabas knew that a church, if a church was going to be vibrant and strong, it needed both relationships together, men and women, boys and girls together, but it also depended on people who were spiritually hungry and desired to let nothing stand in their way, not let their lemonade become dirty. That was Barnabas' encouragement to stand true. You've made a profession of faith in Jesus. Now, Paul would say, go and work out your salvation. Go and engage yourself in those practices that are so important that your life will become rich and that the personality of Christ becomes more and more developed in you. That's what more of our churches need around our country is that men and women would take so seriously the call to see Christ develop them, not just to deal with problems in their life, but to have their personalities changed to reflect more and more the goodness and wonder and the personality of Jesus. Paul would say it this way. He says, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, Barnabas was a great gift to the church. The church at Antioch, he brought this relational passion and the spiritual strength and desire. And then he goes and he realizes there's a lot of teaching that needs to happen among these new believers. And so he goes and gets Saul. He brings Saul up. Saul is the great teacher. He's the great apologist. He had been well-educated. He was an intellectual. And together, Barnabas and Paul, they come together and God works through them as a wonderful team. You see, a healthy church... A church that is vibrant in the Lord is a church that has a multitude of gifts. It's a church that God works through different people in different ways. I was so blessed participating in feeding those who feed us a couple weeks ago and to watch all of the various or some of the various gifts displayed. I'm told that over 70 people from our church participated. I mean, that's amazing. Over 70 people, some prayed, some gave money, some prepared snacks, some came one day, some came all five days, some served out of acts of service, on and on it went. But it was such a blessing to see the administrative gifts of Alice, uh, for instance, on display, and to, to, to watch the, the musical talents of Shania on display and leading the music and on down the list. It was just wonderful to see Bible teachers at work and relationally strong people. You know what I mean? Relationally strong. They just they can't help themselves, but where they go, they make friends and they talk and they, they're kind of relational glue. It's just so great. And I'm so blessed to be part of a church. When I look around every week around this church, I see people who are working on the building and giving of the gifts and talents that God has given them. And, and I see teachers around the church and people who work with preschoolers and uh, musicians and people who greet and are relationally strong. And on down the list, a vibrant, healthy church must be filled with people with diverse gifts because it glorifies God and it strengthens the church to make us the vibrant community that God desires us to be. So Antioch is a vibrant city. The church in Antioch is a vibrant community. And lastly, I, I want to think about together this vibrant name that they were given. Because it says in verse 26 that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That is so interesting to me. 
And that Paul thought that, or uh, Luke thought that was so important to make sure, and the Spirit through him to make sure that that got into the Scriptures. It's a nickname for this community that's developing in Antioch. And I was wondering, what nickname would I have? Or what nickname does this church have based on the way we relate to each other? Based on the way we express ourselves to the world around us? I wonder what nickname I have. You know, when people whisper, maybe, and I don't hear. <laughs> I try not to be uh, overly sensitive <laughs> or insecure. You know who has really great nicknames? The Mafia. A few years ago, um, there was this big Mafia arrest and bust on the East Coast. And some of the names that came out of this, they go something like this. And these are real names or nicknames. Vinny Carwash. Junior Lollipops, Johnny Pizza, The Claw. I don't think I'd want to meet The Claw. What about Tony Bagels? <laughs> I don't know what it is with first names and food, but how those form nicknames, but that must be uh, something interesting. You know, sports figures throughout history, at least in the U.S., have been given great nicknames. I want you to help me with these. Uh, do you know, remember who the great Bambino is? Babe Ruth. Do you know what Babe Ruth's original name is? George Herman. That's good. Okay. Uh, let's go into some movie uh, trivia. The Italian Stallion. That's the actor. What was his character name? Rocky Balboa. The Italian Stallion. That's right. Ooh, what a name. How about this one? You may not know this one. The Flying Tomato. Yeah. Uh, what? Nikki. You Man. See me afterwards. You get a candy bar. The Flying Tomato, Sean White. Uh, he uh, won a gold medal, maybe more than one, in snowboards in the Olympics, snowboarding. He's an amazing guy. And he's called the Flying Tomato because of the height and the acrobatics he does. And guess what color his hair is? Red. Yeah, the Flying Tomato. Uh, you golf lovers will know the Golden Bear. Jack Nicholas. That's right. You know, Barnabas, he had this nickname. The son of encouragement. You know, his real name is Joseph. Joseph's kind of boring. Barnabas, that sounds good. <laughs> Barnabas. You know, the early Christians in Antioch were given a nickname. It was Christian. And likely it was originally given uh, as a derisive term. But you know what's interesting to me was that their community, in the midst of the diversity of their city and the diversity of the religious options there, there was something identifiable... And something remarkable about this group of people that was living their life together in faith in this community. And it became so distinct among all of the other options that they were given a name. It was a nickname, but the nickname stuck. And it was Christian. It's a mixing of the Greek word Christos for Christ and the Latin term Ianus, which means to be uh, identified with or to, to belong to. Uh, you, you hear it in other English words. When, when we hear the word in the Bible, Herodian, we know that a, a Herodian is someone who is identified with Herod. Or an Augustinian is someone who is identified with uh, Augustine. And so Christian is somebody who is identified with the person of Jesus. Jesus the Christ had come and had made such an impression because of those people who brought the message to them. He had made such an impression and formed such a community among them that they were labeled 
And it stuck because it was a good description of who they were. It described what sat at the center of their community, and it was the person of Jesus. It described when the people would go off to their workplaces or back to their homes, and it described what was at the very center and core of their individual lives. It was this Jesus, the Christ. And so to be called a Christ one would eventually take on a received and a joyful status. You see, Jesus was the passion of their lives. And why not be called a Christian if that was the nickname? And so I, I want to end today just by asking that same question. Is what is the nickname that perhaps the world around us has given this church and why? I don't know the answer, but I think it's a, more than just a mental exercise. Because, in fact, I invite you this week to ask yourself that question. And maybe you've heard other things. Or maybe you've heard other descriptions and to ask yourself, why is that? And could we and won't we, as a community, become known for the Jesus who we love and the Jesus who loves us and the Jesus that we gather to worship and the Jesus that we seek so deeply to be formed in us? I don't know what my nickname is, wherever that might be spoken. (laughs) I don't know what yours might be, but I sure hope that part of it is that people see in the DNA of my life and in this community that there is a missionary heart centered around the person of Jesus because of His great love and His great presence. Let's pray. Living God, that is part of our prayer this morning. Out of this vibrant city of Antioch, You you sent Your, your vital people who had a vital message, a vibrant message, and out of that vibrant message they they shared it out of love and a community that was vibrant towards you and with you was formed. And out of that vibrant community, other communities were formed, communities of faith, because they sent those who would become known as missionaries, but uh, just the regular people who went out carrying the gospel message with them. And so we thank You for this vibrant community and we thank You for this vibrant name that is still a name used today. Sometimes we don't really think of the name Christian and what it originally meant. Sometimes we use the name Christian to describe ourselves, but if, if we really examine our life today, maybe it doesn't really tell the story of the way we're living our lives at this moment. So God... We want to carry a name that is meaningful. And we want to be Christian in every sense of the term, not not what the culture around us necessarily describes it as, but we want to be men and women and teenagers and boys and girls who love You passionately and respond to You faithfully and hold You dearly to our hearts. That You are being shaped more and more into our lives so that Christian really is a term of meaning, not a cultural description, not a, a fringe uh, group description. But may people, when they think of the name Christian, may they think of You and marvel at how good You are and about how Your grace has been so good to us. We've sung about that grace today. Grace that forgives and grace that renews and transforms May that be true in our living, in each of our lives, 
and as a description of our church. May we be Christian in every sense of the term. And it's in the name of Jesus the Christ that we pray. Amen.